Marjorie Willicott is a neuroscientist and Emeritus Professor of Human Physiology. She's Research Director for the International Association of Near-Death Studies. She's written numerous books, including Infinite Awareness, The Awakening of a Scientific Mind. So, Marjorie, to start us off, tell us a little bit about your background and about how you became a neuroscientist. And I think that's an interesting question in that I swear that I had scientific inclinations from the time I was about five years old. And in my book, Infinite Awareness, I tell this story about when I was five years old and my mother had decided to kill a gopher that was basically making tunnels throughout our entire garden. And she was very unhappy with it. And I saw then this dead gopher sitting on the lawn and I decided I wanted to know what was inside of it. And so I went inside the kitchen and I got a paring knife. And with my sister's help, we cut the stomach open and I saw all of these glistening organs inside. And it was this fascinating like curiosity and discovery about what was inside these little beings in the world. So I'd say that started my scientific um, leanings um, at, that went on then through um, school. And I went on then to become a neuroscientist for my PhD in a cell and molecular biology program. And I should say that I had wondered earlier on in life if there might be some sort of like a higher power or a God as a child. Mm -hmm. And I do also remember one point what I said to my sister again, very early on, if there is a God in this world, then we should dedicate our life to that God, whatever that would mean. And um, that went into the background. And then I started taking courses in neurobiology and I was told, hey, the material world is all there is. It's the brain that creates our consciousness. And I forgot about all of those things. And I became very strongly materialist and atheist. I didn't believe there could be any higher consciousness. So I actually had a wonderful time in graduate school. And I'll just give you one example of being in my laboratory because it was in a certain sense, heaven for me as a young scientist. I was actually doing research on a marine mollusk, which is actually called Navinaxinermus. And it's a beautiful animal that has blue and gold on its um, body and these beautiful little fins or parapodia that it swims with. And I was able to like do a dissection cut in the animal and record from the neurons in its tiny little brain that actually help it capture prey. And I remember um, activating an audio monitor, which would then allow me to hear those neurons firing. And I would then impale one of those neurons with an electrode. And then I would hear one neuron going da, 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 and another one answering da, 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 da. And it was like, I was hearing the inner talk of an animal in the universe. And there was just something so inspiring about actually being able to hear what was going on inside of it as it was in this case, capturing the prey. So I think those were like the youthful parts of my life that helped me move on then into a neuroscience career, which happens to be in rehabilitation neuroscience. So I worked all of my career really trying to understand how young children normally learn how to stand and balance and how their muscles now move back and forth in the same sort of way where one is talking when it leans forward, the other talking when it leans back. And then how to understand why a child with cerebral palsy can't do that. And then what can we do in rehabilitation to actually improve their standing and their balance abilities so that they can walk and move more normally. So that's basically what my career was about until I had my first meditation experience. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. There's so much there. So in your earlier life, you were quite open-minded. Then you went down the neuroscience route and became, I guess, a little bit more closed-minded and started to see things very through a materialistic lens. 
how did meditation help you to break free again and come back to being open-minded and, and see, the, see, see reality a little bit differently? Yes. Yeah, so, so what I should say is that this was when I was a young professor and I had an opportunity to go down to Arizona in the United States to be with my parents and my sister at Christmas time. And my sister had been studying with an Indian meditation master and she loved meditation. And so when we were staying together at my parents in the same room, she introduced me to some um, mantras and some meditation and I liked it, but you know, I'm a scientist and I'm a skeptic, skeptical scientist. And I still remember that my boyfriend called my sister a bubblehead because she was into spirituality and we were materialist scientists. We knew what the world was about. So then, however, during the time I was in Arizona, there was a plane crash with two planes colliding in the air over Southern California. And I remember at the time I was frightened already of flying, but there was this incident that had just happened and I had to get on a plane in a few days to go back to Oregon where I was. And my sister knew about that anxiety. And so as we were in the airport and she was going with me up toward the plane, um, she said to me, look, I know you're afraid, but I have something that I think might help you. And I said, what? I was ready for anything. My anxiety was so high. And she said, I'm going to give you this mantra. And it was a simple mantra, which is so hum. So on the in-breath, hum on the out-breath. And she said, just repeat it on the flight and see what happens. And so I got on the flight, I sat down, I began repeating that mantra. And I remembered that it totally changed my mental state into one of calmness. And I remember when I'm usually white knuckled at takeoff and landings, I was calm. And I also remember looking out the window of that plane and seeing these beautiful white clouds going by in the sky and feeling just this ecstasy at watching um, the world go by. And I thought, wow, this is powerful. So I think there was a little bit of an opening there toward thinking, well, meditation may not be so strange after all or esoteric. And then the following year, I was now a young professor at a department of a university in Virginia. And my sister said, oh, your birthday's coming up in August. Why don't you come up now to the Catskill Mountains where I'm staying with my meditation teacher and take a meditation intensive. I'll give it to you for your birthday. And she reminds me that I said, yes. And then my boyfriend said, hey, you don't want to do that. And so I said, no. And then finally, the last minute, I said, yes, again. And so I went. And I recall that in that first meditation session of this week-long then retreat, weekend-long retreat, I, we were told that this meditation master was going to come around and initiate every individual there. And he was going to do it through his touch. Now, the scientist in me was skeptical. It's like, really? And yet I was there. I decided to put my skepticism aside for the weekend. And besides, I was curious to actually see what might happen. Yeah. And I think, in fact, in retrospect, curiosity is the most important part of learning in this world. So I closed my eyes and we were meditating and he came around and I distinctly felt him, though my eyes were closed, putting his hands really right on the bridge of my nose. And then I felt what felt like a mini lightning bolt, like a small current of electricity go from that point between my eyes down to the center of my chest. And I could feel the exact point where it stopped, which was in my heart. And then I felt this energy radiating outward. That was the most beautiful experience of what I would call love and joy, like almost like a nectar flowing out through my body and beyond. And I recall that the words that came to mind were, I'm home, mm -hmm. I'm home. My heart is my home. Like I'd never been there before. It was my home and yet I hadn't known how to get to it. And finally I'd found it. And I remember then when I 
left the meditation retreat and went back to my university position in Virginia. The very next morning, I got up at 5 a.m. spontaneously to meditate. And I did it day after day after day. And in fact, I've never stopped doing that because I understood that somewhere beneath the fluctuations of my surface mind, there was this place of intense tranquility inside of me and a place of joy. And I knew I could access it. And that really then started the rest of my life being both a meditator and a scientist. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, I've never really tried it in the same way that you have there, um, but it just sounds fascinating. Can you like to kind of break it down? Because everybody's heard of meditation. Everybody knows roughly, you know, you kind of sit down and you relax your, your brain and you focus on, like you say, a mantra, some, some words or an emotion. But can you kind of define meditation? Is that possible to, to define it in a, in a brief sentence? I absolutely yeah, or longer, because I think the person that I turned to that wrote a wonderful article on it was Richard Davidson from the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And he actually had recorded from many, many different meditators while they were in a functional magnetic resonance scanning machine so he could watch what was happening in the brain. And what he and others have noticed is that when you first start to meditate, the first thing you try to do is focus on something. And it may be your breath, that would be the easiest, or it might be a set of syllables like a mantra. And in that initial focus, he finds that there is a particular part of the brain, which is this um, prefrontal cortex, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex right in here that is becoming active with your focus. But what happens, as we all know, is within moments, sometimes seconds, the mind has wandered to something else. And then another part of the brain that's called the default mode network or the mind wandering network kicks in and that takes over. And that happens to be your medial um, frontal cortex right here. And also the posterior cingulate sort of to the side. These are part of that default mode network. And that keeps going until you suddenly realize, oh my goodness, I'm no longer focusing on my breath. At that point, Another part of the brain we call the salience network says, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be meditating. And that's, that's your anterior cingulate, which is about here. And that then brings your attention back to your breath or the mantra. And now the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is now in charge again. It's your executive attention system that does what you want to do most of the time until you're distracted. So that happens in meditation in this circular fashion. You're meditating on your breath. Oops, you get distracted. What am I going to eat for dinner? And then, oh, I realize I'm distracted and you come back to the breath. And of course, what happens when you begin to exercise those executive attention system muscles, what happens is over time, you begin to spend more time focusing on the breath and therefore less time in your mind wandering activities and the mind becomes quieter and quieter and quieter. And when you reach a certain level of stillness, what we would call it maybe internal absorption in this stillness, then you can begin to have a more expanded awareness. And you can begin to feel like I did your heart opening up and your mind feeling like it's more unit and has more unitary awareness or unitary feeling with the rest of the world. It's like you begin to feel, oh, I'm, I'm one with the other people that are out there. I'm one with nature, with the animals and the plants. And it's a joyful feeling when you feel a unity awareness instead of a sense of separation. So I think that that's the aim of meditation and gradually little by little it happens with months and years of meditation. It takes a while for most of us to do that. Yeah, so it's it's normal for it to be hard at the beginning and you have to work at it. It seems like something, you know, that, that shouldn't take work, but obviously when you when you strip it down, it realize it does, yeah. It really does. And I think that's the hardest thing for most people. They say, oh, 
if I can't meditate in five minutes, then I just can't do it. And they get up and they walk away and never try again. And I know that the it, it's our mind is, it, we've heard it in many traditions, it's a monkey mind. It loves to jump around. And what so often the meditation teachers say is that what you need to do with your monkey mind is not get angry at it. Because getting angry at it just makes it all the more angry itself as you just gently bring it back like you do to a little puppy where you're trying to teach it to stay in one place and say, okay, come back now to the breath again and everything's okay and do it again and again and eventually it makes a new habit. And then it finds it likes being still and it wants to come back, for example, to meditate whenever you let it do that. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Um, have you got like, actually, I was going to ask you that if you've got any kind of tips for beginners, but I will do that in a minute. Before I do that, um, you've mentioned the feeling of peace and love and things like that, which is a clear benefit of meditation. But what are some of the other kind of main benefits, in your opinion? Yeah, for me, when I was this young professor at this university, I'm now at the University of Oregon um, after about a year after I had started meditating. And mm -hmm. I realized that when I would get up early in the morning to meditate for like about an hour before I went to the university, the rest of my day, I had more equanimity. And by that, I meant I had more resilience to come back to my center when things would go off. You know, mm -hmm. the example would be you're in a department meeting and everybody is getting angry at each other with different opinions. We should do this. No, we should do that. And you could feel the energy rising. And in fact, my colleagues would sometimes laugh at me because they could see me sitting there quietly and sometimes just with a quiet smile on my face because I was trying to stay with my breath as I was listening to the discussion so I could stay focused and then actually contribute to the discussion from a place of centeredness and presence rather than reactivity, which is much better for everybody when we can come from that place. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And what about in terms of other, like, like I've read it can help like ADHD and memory and, and I'm sure there's other things, but have, have yes, you done much I, research into those? Well, I certainly have. And I am impressed with they, so, so a number of things. One, for example, as you said, if children with ADHD, so if they have attentional deficit disorder, they find that if you can help the children with very simple forms of meditation that are very playful, it helps them again, bring their mind back, for example, to whatever they're supposed to be doing in front of them. And I'll give you an example. As part of the um, mindfulness meditation um, practices that are now done in clinics around the world as well. And that is you start the child with something so simple as like, just take a raisin and mm -hmm. let the child focus on the raisin, look at it, see it, put it in their mouth, taste it, see what it like. It feels like in their mouth as well, and then slowly chew it and swallow it. And just learn that that's an element of focus where they're focusing on every aspect of beginning to think about the raisin and then eat it and do other things like that. Like maybe listen to a bell or a chime and then see if they can find when the sounds of that bell or chime begin to like wane away and move into nothingness. And you can make that a game with the child and they love to do it. And so gradually, little by little, you train them to keep their mind in the present moment and focused. And they show that that really helps their attentional abilities. And with children, they actually show that it increases the size of their anterior cingulate cortex, part of this executive attention network. And the size of the anterior cingulate cortex is directly related to your success in later life, your health in later life, your level of criminality, you're much less um, aggressive and things like that, and your overall well-being. So it shows that meditation can change the size of the anterior cingulate cortex in the brain, and that it has all these other beneficial consequences later in life. Wow. You say you do an hour a day yourself? I do an hour a day. A lot of people start with maybe even 10 or 15 minutes. Yeah. And that's because it takes a while to um, get into that habit and begin to enjoy it. But I should say it takes me 
typically about 30 minutes myself to truly quiet my mind down. Mm, And so here's one thing, just again, for anybody that's listening, um, when you're starting out and your mind is jumping from one thought to another, which it will, my mind still does that. What I can do is simply be the witness of watching my mind and say, oh, there it goes again. Okay, now I'm going to bring it back to the breath. And then, oh, there it goes again. Again, you do it from this state of what I call witness consciousness, just being the observer. And then you'll notice gradually with curiosity, there's more space between the thoughts. And then, oh, now there's three seconds between my thoughts instead of a half a second. And then there's 10 seconds. And so part of it is having the curiosity to watch the process and enjoy the process and say, yeah, it's going to take maybe 30 minutes to quiet down. But I thought the time, you know, I'm putting this time aside in the morning. Why not just stay in the moment and enjoy it? Yeah. I think for me and probably lots of other people as well, even like five, 10 minutes can feel, even though obviously we can all find five or 10 minutes, right? Even the busiest person in the world can find five or 10 minutes, but sometimes it can just feel daunting. It can feel like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm too busy to sit down for that, even though you're not. And and even if you're not busy, it just feels like, wow, how am I going to sit down and do nothing, seemingly do nothing? for 10 minutes um yeah it's hard so i guess yeah it'd be a great time if you could offer maybe a little some some tips a guide or just some advice for for beginners like me and and others well and so the first thing for me is also a quote from a friend of mine that i really love which is this it's like we think we're we're actually human doing but we're human beings Mm. and the trouble is that we're we think in our current culture that doing is the only thing that's worthwhile and being is not. But the whole point of meditation is to rest in your being for a certain amount of time during the day so that when you do, you are totally clear and focused and doing the job really well instead of off with your anxieties about what you should be doing next. And so first of all, I suggest that this isn't something you just do in the morning for X number of minutes. But then when you come out of meditation, if you can remember what it feels like to be present during those last minutes of meditation and take it with you when you walk for me in the kitchen to start my breakfast after meditation, can I stay focused as I'm cutting my strawberries, as I am putting the milk on my cereal and not let my mind wander to what is happening next in my day. Because I think that's what they define meditation as it's truly being in the present moment, totally present to what you're doing with a quiet mind. And one other thing I want to add before we talk about some tips too, is this wonderful study by Matthew Killingsworth that was done at Harvard University, I believe, where they asked people to take an app And that app every so often in the day at random times would simply turn on and then it would ask them, what are you doing now? What are you thinking about what you're doing or something else? And are you happy or not? And what they found is that 50% of the time people were not thinking about what they were doing. Their mind was wandering to something else. And 50% of the time the people were unhappy. In other words, when your mind gets distracted, you become unhappy. And so the more we can keep our mind in the present on what we're doing, the happier we will be. So one great thing, strengthening those muscles of our attentional system that keep us focused in the moment, enjoying the process of what we're doing. And I mean, here's the other example. I think about the dishes. And I think there's some great quote by an Asian teacher once that said, when you're doing the dishes, you should be doing the dishes and doing the dishes because you want to do the dishes and you don't want to get them done quickly so you can be somewhere else. And to me, that's that same thing, whether it's in meditation itself, just or the dishes. I'm there enjoying the whole process of cleaning the dishes and doing what I'm doing in that moment. 
So yeah. now getting back to during meditation, I mean, for me, it also helps to remember that there are things that I can do to help my mind stay focused. One thing that I often do is I focus on my heart. And sometimes I'll even put my hands over my heart to remind me to stay focused on my heart. And then I just let my energy and my attention go right to that, that core of my being. And I simply rest in the heart. And I find that that helps me focus on the love that is right there inside of me when my mind is still. And I may just hold my hands there for a few minutes, really feeling that, and then just drop them down and see if I can keep myself coming back to that place. And I should note that for myself, especially after that initial awakening and meditation, I can often remember sort of that place in my heart where that energy like really sort of like opened for me in that first mm -hmm. meditation and come back to that feeling. And often it's a feeling almost of like this sweet vibration in addition to love in my heart or a sweet vibration between my eyebrows, just a sweet vibration or in the top of my head. And just staying with those sensations also gives me a great feeling. And then when I say, oh, I've slipped away, it's like, well, I want to go back to that feeling. That was good. <laughs> and then I come back to it. So I think part of it is noticing that a quiet mind doesn't have to be a bored mind. A quiet mind can be a present mind curious about what's happening inside of it while you are feeling that stillness, just being curious about the stillness inside. Yeah. Wow. I really, I really do want to be able to like do some proper meditation. You know, I've, I guess there's no excuse, is there? I should just, should just do it. Yeah. Yes. Just, yeah. just sit I mean, down. Yeah. Close my I mean, eyes. When here's something else to say, um, Ben, one of the things that my own teacher once said, she said, you should make a few activities like meditation in your day um, scheduled. And she uses the three S's, which is basically um, um, scheduled, specific, so you know exactly what you're going to meditate. And then also how long you're going to do it. I'm going to meditate for 10 minutes so that I know, okay, every single morning I'm going to get up after my alarm goes off and I take my shower, I'm gonna sit down and it's gonna be specific, it's gonna be meditation, it's gonna be scheduled at this hour and it's going to be then small enough that I can do it. I can do 10 minutes and then you can lengthen it as it becomes appropriate for what feels like it's comfortable for you to do. So again, it's starting with those little bite-sized pieces, but then making a commitment that I don't care if I don't feel like getting up this morning, I can do 10 minutes. And then once you're sitting, oh, the 10 minutes doesn't seem so bad once I've actually sat down on my meditation cushion. So do you think posture and where you sit are important? And would you say there's like a minimum amount of time that it's worth doing this for? Yeah, good question. So first of all, so in my own practice, I have a special uh, place set aside. Um, and it, so I have like a little meditation room in one place and actually in the other um, country house that we live in, I have a a, a cushion that's like in, in a separate portion of my bedroom. So mm -hmm. in that place, I, I have a little, a low table. I have a, some flowers. I have a, a picture, for example, of my meditation teacher, because I like to remember the state my meditation teacher is in, because I want to be in that state too. Mm -hmm. So I put beautiful things around me and then I have, you know, low lighting and often I'll put on um, some very quiet um, meditative music in the background. In India, they have an instrument called a tambura, which is a stringed instrument that just makes these low, beautiful strumming noises that help quiet the mind down. And so sometimes I'll put that in the background. Otherwise, I'll just meditate with a quiet mind. And um, then it's a matter of however long I have going ahead and committing to it. And in fact, a lot of people say, why not make multiple five minute meditations throughout your day in between activities, a time to quiet your mind down, turn within, feel a little bit better before you go on to your next activity and feel refreshed. 
So that's one part of it. And then posture actually is very important. And I think that for myself, again, I'm sitting with a nice straight erect back and I want to be sure my shoulders are open and I don't slump. But sometimes we find that as we meditate, we begin to like go out <laughs> and then, you know, you feel yourself slumping and then you come back to that erect posture again and focusing on the breath with this nice open chest that also helps keep you alert. And I should also mention something I've discovered over the years. And that is that there is this fine razor's edge between the mind being too active and going into thoughts and wandering and the mind being too unactive and going and dosing off and sleeping. Mm. And I can go back and forth between those. And so you're trying to find that place where, okay, I'm not dozing, I'm truly present, but I'm not letting the mind wander. And just gently being aware of those things and coming back to the present. And, and I did notice in the beginning that when I would doze off and find myself asleep in the middle of my meditation, it was often because I had not given myself enough sleep the night before. Mm. So there was a reason to go to bed at a reasonable hour. For me, that's like about nine o'clock because I get up at 5 a.m. in the morning. For other people, it might be 10 or 11 because they sleep in. But the point is you find that time where you're going to get a full night's sleep so that you will be alert when you meditate. And I should say, I meditate in the morning, but I also meditate before I go to bed at night for a little while. Some people are better in the evening and they might choose the evening to meditate. And it's totally up to your own body systems and what works for you. But the idea is to be scheduled in your practice. Okay. And you think it's good as well to do, yeah, like like your friend, I think you think it was your friend, like little and often as well, or at least little while you're, while you're beginning, but often regular, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I know that when I was a university professor, I'm now retired, I would often have like maybe five minutes in my day between meetings, something like that. And I would just sit in my office, close my eyes, sit in my chair and focus on my breath. And you can just feel your whole body like coming into alignment, slowing down and feeling more energized. Mm. Yeah, it must be a good way to help deal with stress during particularly stressful days. Um, so you focus on your breath. So for me, I don't know if there's anybody else that's watching or listening that feels the same. But when I try to focus on my breath, I sometimes I get like two in my own head and I sometimes like, you know, lose my breathing rhythm. And I'm like, oh, I, I just don't not a big fan of it. So would you suggest either I push through that and just really try and continue to focus my breath and just figure out how to do it without losing my breath? Or would you suggest I kind of focus on like a man mantra or an emotion or, or something else? How, how would you suggest I handle that? You're raising a really good point. And I want to mention that, so my own background comes from a tradition from around the 10 and 1100s in India from this place called Kashmir in the north of India back mm. then. And it's called Kashmir Shaivism, that's the general name for it. But are these texts that talk about how people, ordinary householders can get into meditation. And there's this one particular text in Sanskrit is called the Vijnana Bhairava. And it has a number of many, many, many different techniques for getting into meditation because every single person is different. And I like the fact that even back, you know, a thousand years ago, they were saying, look, we're all different. I'm going to give you many, many different tools and you can try the one and see which one works for you. Yeah. And so I think, for example, one way that I have found is simply focusing on the heart. I mentioned that. So not the breath, but just letting my attention rest in my heart. Or like my on the heartbeat, sorry, to, on the heartbeat or just in that general kind of that area, well, your, often your center. Often when you focus on the heart, you'll begin to hear your heartbeat. And that's great because a lot of us don't even notice our heartbeat during mm. the day. But for me, it's more like just resting with my awareness there. And of course, it 
gets distracted and I come back. Same thing between my eyes. And what often happens when I rest my attention on a particular body part is that I feel the energy that begins to be moving there, an internal sweet energy. And that draws me in further. So, the, I mean, so that's one tool, but again, mantras are very powerful. And again, some of these mantras from India were actually, they're, they're powerful in their own vibrational energy and they are meant to be focused with the breath and somehow saying the mantra with the breath can sometimes allow you not to get overly controlling of the breath and feel like you're out of breath. So um, there are a couple of, one is um, Soham that I mentioned that my sister gave me. Another one is just um, slightly in the reverse, it's Ham Sa. And so that is one of those universal, it's the sound of the breath. And they're also considered sacred syllables that bring you back to the source of your pure awareness of that stillness inside of you. And of course, in many traditions, there are other mantras and people can actually try some of their own mantras sometimes. I mean, one that my husband loves is simply saying the words, I am. And he likes that because he's usually saying, I am Paul. And the Paul part gets in the way, you know, because then I'm happy, I'm sad. And he says, no, 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 I just, I am. And that allows you to feel the expansiveness of just being again and not worrying about the doing part for the moment. Wow. So, so it's like a breathe, breathe in through your nose. And then as you're breathing out, you just say, kind of whisper or say these, these words um, and just, just be. Yes. And, and again, those are things that you can play with. So for um, some of the mantras that I use, I say the mantra on the in-breath and I say the mantra on the out-breath. Okay. Okay. Other times I can just repeat the mantra at any speed that's comfortable for me. So, and, and it's, it's, I think that's the beauty, realizing there's no right or wrong. Here's yeah. what meditators think. Oh, I'm not doing it right. That's the problem. It's like, no, 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 no. Be curious and watch inside, and then you'll know what's right for you. So then you can play around. Shall I try it on the in-breath and the out-breath, or half of it on the in-breath, the other half on the out-breath, or just focus on the breath? And, and then it becomes a playful curiosity of what works best for me in bringing my mind into that stillness, that presence. Wow. So say somebody then, like very busy person that wants to try this, but they uh, have a very short attention span as well. It's not me at all. Um, so how long would you say, like I said, is the kind of shortest amount of time that would be worth yeah, trying it for? So if I said, oh, I'm going to do 10 seconds, obviously it's not worth it. What, what would you say? When does it become, yeah, that's a good place to start? Well, see, I, I, I could certainly say that if somebody feels they really have a hard time, they can start with five minutes. But then for that full five minutes, we're hoping that they will be alert enough to bring their attention back to their breath or whatever. And um, typically we say start with 10 to 20 minutes of meditation. 20 minutes is about the average one that many, many traditions have you start out with. And you might do 20 minutes in the morning and then another 20 minutes in the evening, you know, when you're beginning to quiet down again. And then you've got 40 minutes in your day that you're just working on keeping that monkey mind quieter. And then, you know, it helped. Here's another point. It helps you sleep. So for a while I had insomnia and I went to a sleep doctor and he said, well, you know, I suggest that you stay up an hour later because then you'll be more sleep deprived and then you'll sleep solidly. And I thought, well, I don't want to stay up an hour later per se, but then I thought, oh, I can meditate an hour before I go to sleep at night. And then I realized what I was doing is instead of keeping my mind in a book that was like exciting me and adrenalizing me, whether it was a scientific book or a novel, I could be focusing my mind on my breath during that last hour. And I found that then I went to sleep within minutes once yeah. I changed that to letting go of all of the computer activity and the book activity and then just I'm dropping into a space of meditation before I went to bed. Awesome. Um, you mentioned the, the Kashmir Shaivism. I don't know if I'm pronouncing yeah. it right, but can you tell me a little bit more about that? How you like, what is it, how you got into it? And yeah, just, I yes. guess that. 
<laughs> yeah, so first of all, it was it, my own meditation teacher who was from India knew a lot about it. He had read about these texts, you know, from the time he was a young meditation um, student. And then as he became a real master of meditation, he realized that these texts, as they were explaining the meditation process and the experience of meditation resonated most with his own experience. And so he said, I want them to share them with my own students. So this particular philosophy from India is one that we would call non-dualism. And by non-dualism, we simply mean that it says that everything in the universe is connected. And there is an, a universal consciousness in the universe that is infinite, that is eternal, and we are a part of that consciousness. So one of the um, phrases that he would often use is, God dwells within you as you. So that infinite consciousness, you can use God or not, that infinite consciousness dwells within you as your own awareness. It is the infinite awareness and you have a finite awareness typically, but you can expand that awareness through meditation and being present so that you have a widened, more expansive awareness and can begin to sense, for example, the state of the people around you. And you can have more compassion for the people around you because you feel this unity with them. So that's one of the tenets of Kashmir Shaivism. Basically, this infinite awareness is part of me but it's much bigger than me, but it includes everyone in the universe and everything in the universe. So the plants and the trees around me also have that awareness, perhaps at a more um, coarse level, they don't have the same mind I have, but they still have that awareness. And so it allows us when we have that understanding to feel, first of all, compassion for everything else in the universe, and also a sense of responsibility for wanting to take care of the things around us. And that includes our planet. And because you understand that this awareness that I have is also eternal, you realize that you want to care about the generations coming up beyond us, the children that are going to be born in another 20 years, 40 years, 100 years. And so you want the planet to stay healthy and happy so that it will be a place for people to really enjoy for centuries and centuries, thousands of years to come. So it shifts your own um, lens on the universe when you actually enjoy this whole understanding that is again i'd say the core of this kashmir shaivite philosophy wow yeah it sounds like something the world needs right now if everybody could uh, try that um what about kundalini because that's what i've heard of frequently and and you know i'm i just don't really know much about it i guess uh, so if you could tell me a little bit again about that and about how you got into that and any any experiences you've had with it with it Sure. I should mention, first of all, that that experience I had was what I would term a kundalini awakening. Okay. And I say that because when I felt that heart opening, it was in one of the centers of my body. I didn't know about kundalini at the time. I was a scientist. But then later on, as I read, I found out that when you read about this kundalini energy of the universe, you realize that it is considered, first of all, to be the creative energy within the universe that brings everything into existence. But as it does that within human beings, it also then goes inside of us in our subtle energy system as this central channel of our energy system from the base of the spine through the crown of our head. And as many people know, there are then these energy centers all along the um, central channel, including your heart center, center between your eyes, et cetera. And these are places where the Kundalini 
is then beginning to move once it's awakened. They say that normally in a um, human being, we come into this earth with a dormant Kundalini, a sleeping energy system. And then at some point in our lives, there's an awakening of this energy and we begin to understand that we're much more than this individual, that we are connected with the rest of the universe. And so I think the interesting thing about reading about Kundalini again in these texts from Kashmir is that it is an intelligent energy. And we simply want to try to align ourselves with its own intelligence and allow it to begin to be nourished and to flourish inside of it as it purifies us of the concepts that we have in our mind that we're very small individual beings separate from the rest of the world. So the Kundalini is there to like flush out these um, limited concepts and let us see a lar much larger understanding that I am one with everyone else around me and that you begin to have that experience then of like luminosity. So often when the Kundalini is awakened, what you feel is like light coming up through your spine. And sometimes people feel the energy literally going out the top of their head, like exploding in this big light coming out the top of their head. Sometimes they actually experience their awareness leaving their body and they watch their body from like above them and at the top of the room. And they find this a very, very joyful experience. It's like, I'm free. I'm not just this body. You know, this is part of me, but I'm much more than that. So that's part of it. And I want to say that I have now written about, I guess, three or four papers on this Kundalini energy research papers, because I've been very interested in it. And the first one was actually written with Yvonne Kaysan, who has done a lot of her own work on near-death experiences and written books on near-death experiences and Russell Park. And we published it in the Explore Journal. And what had been done is um, Yvonne and others had collected um, interview questionnaires from almost 600 people, I believe, about their own spiritual awakenings, mm -hmm. and then quantified them with questions about, so on a scale of one to five, how strong was it? Did you experience light? Did you hear sounds? Um, what, what was the energy of feeling like in your spinal cord? Was it tingling? Was it a sense of like rushing up? So we had these nice questionnaires that could help us quantify this. And it was fascinating to see how many people with this awakening would call it a mystical experience. And usually there was expansion of their energy beyond their body, often a feeling of light, a feeling of love, sometimes vibrations in their body as the energy would move through it. And then how gradually that shifted their whole life, it transformed them. It's like the awakening often causes a shift in our worldview from oh, this is just a material universe. It's a dead universe. It's like um, the brain creates the mind, but there is no consciousness beyond what's created by the brain, et cetera, mm -hmm. to one of, oh my goodness, no, my awareness is here now and it will be here even when my body falls away. It's like they have a new understanding, like an inner knowing that that seems like the truth for them now, rather than the old truth that consciousness is just part of the brains of, of the neurons of your brain. So I think that that's been fascinating to watch. And then of course we talked about transformative experiences um, as the Kundalini continued to be awake. And often they would say that they gained psychic abilities and other people would say that now basically the love in my life has increased. So I feel like a love for not only my own family, but my community, the whole world. They'd say I'm less materialistic. Um, money doesn't seem to be so important. It's not that it's not important, but now I respect money, but I don't feel like that's the, the reason that I'm in existence to get more money. Yeah. They realize that relationships are much more important to them, for example. And the other thing that's interesting is that it begins to cause a change in careers for many people. It's like when they were originally, well, a little bit like me with my neuroscience career, I was doing that originally from more this materialist perspective. 
But once I began meditating, I found that I wanted to study meditation in my laboratory. And so I began studying meditation and I began um, trying to understand more about how our mind can get into a meditative state and how our brain and our mind interact. So it opens up a whole new curiosity um, as we are transformed. And in fact, I also just sent another paper into Explore that I think is fascinating because it's a paper where I actually sent questions out to scientists and academics who had had spiritual awakenings. And I asked them who were almost always materialistic before they had that experience, what it was like after that spiritual awakening. And first of all, I mean, what was interesting is again, many, many of them shifted careers. They had a PhD. They were like, in one case, a quantum physicist. And he said, I can't do this anymore. This does not seem to be like the most important thing in my life. And he's shifted to doing um, retreats for people, um, sort of awakening them to a new understanding of life. Um, and he's the head of a retreat center. And I think the other thing that was interesting is they also noted that it was very hard to share this information with any of their colleagues in science or the university. And if they did, they would lose their credibility. Yeah. In fact, three of the people that were part of that um, questionnaire and, and my interview process said originally that they never had shared this with any of the people at the university, only with their close family and friends, because they feel felt that they would lose their jobs if they did. Yeah, yeah, I'm not surprised. It's still kind of very stigmatized, isn't it? Anything that's not material, anything that's not physical. There were a couple of things that, that jumped out at me that I wanted to ask you about from what you just said. So the out-of-body experiences with the kind of awakening, the Kundalini awakening, are you aware if that if there's ever been like a kind of recorded veridical like uh, out-of-body experiences with that? So where people were, were with somebody else when that happened and the other people were able to confirm that? Well, I mean, you know what a veridical out-of-body experience is, of course, with your NDE research. But are you aware if that's ever been the case yeah. with yeah, it's a good question. And I don't know of one off the top of my head. I can go back and like really try to um, see about that, typically because it is an internal process and they're simply mm. looking down on themselves from the room. It would be hard in that case yeah. to actually say whether this was um, veridical or not, because it's just the ordinary room that they're in. Yeah. But I should say that, of course, we know from the near-death experiences where people also have their awareness leave their body. In that case, the person often in a hospital wanders down the hall out of their mm. body and can verify things that happened in another room, a conversation. And that is absolutely documented in a number of studies. So I I think that yeah. out-of-body experiences in near-death experiences are um, definitely authenticated, but I don't know of others. It'd have to be a special situation where you yeah. left your body and then you moved on to another room. Um, and typically in, in a Kundalini awakening, it simply happens, you're aware of it, and then gradually, you know, you come back into your body over time. Yeah. And what about, you mentioned that some people believe that they have like psychic powers after this, uh, or they kind of improve their powers or whatever. Can you talk a little bit more about that just briefly? Oh, sure. I mean, first of all, one of the humorous things was that people said that they noticed that they began to make electrical um, machines, et cetera, malfunction when they were near mm -hmm. them. And I mean, one example would simply be their watches were stopped working. But another one was they would go underneath these street lamps and the lamps would stop working when they went underneath them. So there are those humorous things as well. And like computer systems would, would stop working for a while, et cetera. So it was as if this energy that's inside of them now is affecting other energetic systems around them. So that's rather humorous. But in addition, a lot of them found that they had healing energy. And people noted that, that when the people, other people were around them, they could feel this person's difference in energy. And also that they 
had the empathy to know what was wrong with other people to help them out. So that they literally, that sort of a psychic ability, well, this person needs help in this way and I can help them. Mm. So it was surprising again, how many people noticed that they had these healing abilities. Wow. Um, talking of healing abilities, can you talk, in okay, fact, before we do, is there anything else you want to talk about, uh, say about meditation before we move, move on to something else? That's an interesting question. I think maybe one thing is the transformative aspects of meditation that I think we aren't aware sometimes that it can truly be transformative if you keep doing it throughout your life mm -hmm. and that it allows you to be a more creative scientist. It allows you to be a better mother or father or sister or brother. It allows you to be a better businesswoman or man. So I think that literally this Kundalini energy um, is creative and it um, enjoys, it's a playful energy as well. I think that's one thing we often, in, in the Kaifer and Shabite philosophy, they say this world is a play of the creative process and we need to understand it is a joyful play on the one hand because literally according to universal consciousness, we come into the world and be, we become part of the play in act one and then we leave the world and um, um, somebody else comes in for act two and then we may come back again in a different body for act three. So it's seeing it more as this um, eternal process of creation, sustenance, dissolution, back and forth. And yes, it can be painful when you're going through transitions and when you're going through, in this case, the dying process is dying away, but then you move to the other side and everything's fine again. So it's like trying to help us understand that we shouldn't take things so seriously and we shouldn't hold on. The biggest lesson for me in my life about the meditation process is I suffer when I am attached to the current situation. And either I want the current situation to stay I don't want to ever get sick or I don't like being sick and I want to push it away as fast as I can and say, excuse me, this isn't right. This isn't fair. And they, and according to this philosophy, when you enter this world, this material world, you've signed up for the two polarities, the great joy and the sufferings, because that's part of this process of um, transition between creation and dissolution. And so that's where being the witness, when you can stop and watch and just be present, it, it, the pain may still be there, but the suffering may not be there in the same way. So to me, that is one of the key issues. And one last thing I wanna to mention too, is that I talk about Kundalini, but in fact, that's the Indian term for it. In um, the Christian tradition, it's often called the Holy Spirit. The Jewish tradition, maybe the Shekinah, or in Japan, the Ki, China, the Chi, African tribesmen have their own word for it as well. So I think the point is that it's a universal energy and each culture gives it its own name when they begin to feel this moving inside of people who have these spiritual awakenings. Wow, yeah, that's fascinating you mentioned that actually, because I'm always trying to figure out, you know, like religions and how this all kind of fits in. Because I do think that they came from somewhere, right? Like there's something to them. There's, there's clearly aspects that are based on reality but maybe just been misinterpreted or, or we've labeled it, you know, in, in an incorrect manner and then it's stuck. Um, but that's really interesting to, to hear about that. So we'll move on to just briefly talk about energy healing because you've also done some, you, you're familiar with that. Um, Definitely. So like, like, like Reiki, acupuncture, Tai Chi, and maybe 
probably many other forms as well um so yeah just kind of go wherever you want with this and just tell me a little bit about it educate me a little bit so during my last 10 years at the University of Oregon, I was in the human physiology department and we had a lot of pre-med majors and pre-physical therapy majors, et cetera. And um, these students in their senior year are able to take what they would call a capstone course. And I thought, you know, I'm studying meditation and these alternative forms of medicine. I would love to give seniors who are going on to a medical career, another lens on medicine. And so I said, why don't we teach them a alternative and complementary medicine course? And so what I did then is I brought in practitioners from all the different modalities of complementary medicine to the class. They talked. We also had a beautiful textbook that described all of these modalities. And then they had to write a paper on what the research said about the efficacy of these particular modalities. And so one of them was energy medicine. And I also believe that if I was going to talk about a particular modality, I should try it myself. So um, for the Reiki or energy um, healing, I went to a local practitioner in Eugene, Oregon, where the university is. And I had my first experience with her and I felt, ah, you know, I do feel a lot more calm and nurtured as she's working on the energy parts of my body. And I became a little more curious and I said, hey, I'm going to actually go to a workshop that's happening in Washington state. And I'm going to take the workshop workshop and learn more about what it's like to actually learn about energy healing. You know, how do you actually learn this process? And I thought I would do it as the observer scientist watching these people um, learn. But in fact, what happened is that when you join a course, you become one of the people that gets tested, so to speak, and is doing all of the um, exercises with people. So after the first evening of giving us instructions and lectures, the woman says, okay, now you're going to try it on each other. And I'm going, oh no, not me. <laughs> I'm just a scientist. <laughs> but uh, I paired up with a nice young man who's actually done a little bit himself. So I say, you go first. So I lie on the table. And then he, of course, puts his hands in different places over my body and is doing the process. And as he's doing it, something comes into my awareness. It's like, oh, I know how to do this. I understand at some like deep internal level. And so when he was through and I then um, lay down, if uh, he lay down on the table and I stood up and I went through this whole procedure of putting my hands in different places on his body and feeling the energy, I found that as I, for example, put my hands over his head, I went into this deep meditative state and I could feel the energy in my hands. And then as I did, as I went through the different parts of the body, it was like this meditative state would take over and the energy would be guided in the right way. And at one point, my, our teacher of the energy healing class comes over to me and she says, Marjorie, oh, something like, you're, you're so beautiful and methodical about it. And I thought she was joking, oh, you're a scientist, but no, she was really, she said, no, no, no. She said, you really are good. And I thought that's it's intriguing because what it taught me is often when I can let my intellect get out of the way and I can go into a meditative state, then I can access this energy and allow it to flow through me. And I think that's often the key. The intellect can be a great friend at certain times and also a bit of an enemy at other times when I want the intellect to quiet down and let the energy flow through. So that was my first experience. But then I began doing research then as I wrote my book, Infinite Awareness, and one chapter is on energy healing. And I discovered that energy healing is not just this complementary form of medicine. It is now being taught and used in the major medical centers around the United States. And I imagine in England and other places. And for example, Yale University has its own courses in energy medicine and clinics that have it, Stanford University, Harvard University, these big, well-established medical centers. And there's this one particular study by a woman named Rachel Friedman at Yale University and her colleagues, where they took patients that had had a heart attack and after a heart attack, they decided while the people were in the hospital, they would give them 
their choice, well, actually, I think it was a randomized trial. So they gave them one of three different um, procedures and a certain effect. One was they could simply be put on bed rest. So they're quiet. They could have music that would be calming, soothing music, or they could have Reiki. And what they found is that of the three groups, the Reiki group showed the highest improvement in heart rate variability. Now, the more variable your heart rate is after a heart attack, the healthy, healthier it is because it means it can adapt to different situations. And in fact, the improvement in heart rate variability with Reiki was the same as the drug usually given to patients called propanolol. And the issue is that if you can use Reiki instead of a drug that has side effects and it has exactly the same effects, why not use the energy healing? So I thought that was a powerful study yeah. on improvement. Yes. Yeah. I guess the sad answer to the rhetorical question of why not is because nobody's going to make any money if it's uh, if you're doing Reiki, right? Well, you know, it, I mean, certainly the pharmaceutical companies won't mm. be making the money, but I think the point is that if we train more physicians in Reiki and other energy healing along with their other modalities, wouldn't it be beautiful if people mm. could actually Absolutely. use different modalities on their patients? And of course, oh, in yeah. some that happens. I should mention that, of course, in China, they often have an Eastern medicine and a Western medicine wing of the hospital and mm. people can choose, which is interesting. And now more and more at different medical centers around the country, they give people options of having some of these integrative medicine programs um, being used on them as well. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. I think there should be a lot more, yeah, a lot more choice and a lot more, well, we should just be doing more with it, researching it like you're doing. Um, because I think we went through a period, didn't we, humanity, where, or we're still in it, I guess, in, in a lot of places where it's just everything is about the, the doctors want to give you pharmaceutical drugs. That's that's yeah, basically that's right. it. They they don't want to talk about diet. They don't want to talk about health health and fitness and how you, kind of welfare. And then they don't want to get into anything about spirituality or meditation or, or like you say, energy healing. Um, but hopefully that's going to continue to advance. I suppose it is really. Um, it is. But, and I think the issue that so many people remind me about is, first of all, it's not just the doctors that only want to give you pharmaceutical drugs. Often the patients think that's the quick mm, fix. And yeah. I'll give you an example. So somebody has anxiety. Well, um, you can go to a psychotherapist and it may take you a while to work through the anxiety. You may want to meditate and calm your mind. But if you could just take a pill, which then a lot of people do, I think um, antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications are some of the highest in the United States, probably in Europe as well, around the mm -hmm. world. Um, the trouble with those antidepressants and anti-anxiety meditations I know about because I have friends that are taking them is that they have long-term side effects. And when you want to get off of them, you often have severe headaches, you can have nightmares. They, you know, that's in the fine print when you like open up that prescription and it tells about them. And so then you have to suffer from that when you want to get on them or you can be on them the rest of your life. And mm. wouldn't it make more sense to like do something with a psychologist and meditative teacher to try to work through what those things might be that are causing the anxiety so that you can understand them and perhaps remove them from your life? Yeah, absolutely. This question came from somebody who watches the podcast. What is the latest interesting research that ties neuroscience to parapsychology? That's an interesting one. Well, so I'll tell you a little, little about some of the research that I have been um, doing myself and also seeing um, that I think is very interesting. And this is research, again, on that default mode network of the brain. So I'm going to take a step back to say that 
take a step back. Basically, when we come into this world as embodied beings, we already have filtered much information out from the universe so that we can actually function normally in this world. So basically we have our five senses. And as we know, vision gives us just a few frequencies of visual vibration along the spectrum to be able to see. And a lot of it is filtered out. We can't see it. Same with our hearing, um, with our touch, et cetera. Only certain things actually come through to us. And what that means is that it's got a really good benefit in that now we're not overwhelmed by too much energy so we can actually see what things might be um, potentially harmful and we can run away from them, you know, if you are being chased by a bear in the woods. Um, but it also um, has limitations because now we can't experience this expanded awareness and, for, for example, maybe feel the vibrations and the sensibilities of other people and things around us. We don't have that expansion. So... The interesting thing is that you have those sensory filters and then you have this default mode network as well as other centers of our brain, our language centers that all are limiting what we are aware of. So my default mode network has I, my, my chatter from the brain always going on in the background, keeping me from being aware of what's going on around me. And we all know that you're walking down the street and you're involved in your inner dialogue with somebody and you haven't even seen what was going by you. Mm. So there's the example. The other one is our language centers. It's like um, Ian McGilchrist is a wonderful um, physician and also has a PhD in Scotland that has written a book called The Master and His Emissary about the divided brain, basically our left and our right side of the brain. And the fact that my left side of the brain to my right hand is my analytical side. And it's the one chattering away about, oh, you have to analyze this and cut it into parts to understand it. And it's actually stronger these days in most people than the um, right side of the brain to the left hand. That's the holistic side of the brain that sees things as a whole. And so what we're seeing is that all of these filters are in our brain, making our awareness become more and more limited. And we tend to have what we would call our egocentric narrative about me versus the rest of the world. And what do I do to stay healthy and happy and alive? And I'm the most important thing, which is great when you are running away from bears in the woods, but now it doesn't work. And so what we say is happening then when you have a near-death experience, or when you're deep in meditation, is that literally this default mode network of the brain and the other networks of the brain begin to turn down. So in fact, it's not that something turns up, but these all become quieter. And the quieter the brain becomes, the more your awareness expands. And now you can actually experience for example, the feelings of other things around, people around you. You can be in the present moment and know exactly what needs to be done. And people often notice that colors are brighter. It's literally like your senses are expanded when all of these filters begin to turn down. In near-death experiences, they turn off altogether because the mind has stopped. And then uh, people may leave their body and they may obviously be able to move uh, other places. The awareness is now an expansive awareness. So I think that that is one of the main things I know is this quieting actually of the networks of the brain, not certain networks getting um, perhaps more excited, allowing us to see more things, but it's really that the filters are being turned down or turned off. Yeah. Wow. And that kind of fits with, uh, I guess, some some theories of consciousness, doesn't it, with, which some people have come up with. Um, but we can get into that a little bit later. So for now, I wanted to go on to you. You are a research director. You are, you are a research director at the International Association of Near-Death Studies. So yes. how did you first come across, come across, come across a near-death near experiences? And what are your thoughts on the phenomena? And what do you think it tells us about, I guess, consciousness and reality? Yes. 
So when I was writing my book, Infinite Awareness, what happened is I got to the chapter on near-death experiences, and I was working on that chapter, and I had read a lot of the research studies, especially by Bruce Grayson, for example, mm -hmm. Kenneth Ring, others, and I was at a meditation retreat, actually, I was teaching a meditation retreat, and one of the women that was helping out with the retreat was an MD, and I told her a little bit about the book and that I was working on these chapters, on the chapter on near-death experiences, and she said, oh, I've had one. It's like, really? And her name was Bettina Payton from um, the Boston area. And we realized, well, we're about to start a meditation retreat. We can't talk about this now. But so after the retreat was over with, we then had a telephone conversation for about an hour where she told me about her NDE, which was a very powerful NDE, where, in fact, it was during the birth of her third child. And they knew it was going to be a difficult birth because the placenta was covering the opening of the birth canal. And that meant that there could be an incredible amount of blood loss and the um, life of her and her daughter um, would perhaps be at high risk. So they decided to do the C-section as soon as the baby had lung capacity to be able to live independently. But during the C-section, at one point, you know, her eyes are taped shut, by the way. Um, they always do that to protect the corneas. She suddenly comes awake under anesthesia. And she hears these words of the anesthesiologist. In effect, you know, her blood pressure is plummeting. And how far along are you in the surgery? And she realizes that things are not going well. And she actually then sees, even though her eyes are taped shut, around into the room, and she sees basically the drip coming down um, into her IV. She sees everything around her. And then all of a sudden, she senses that there is no beat inside of her chest. Her heart mm. has stopped. Now, the cardio monitor hasn't even gone off yet, but like seconds later, she hears, you know, the bang of yeah. um, all of the system saying that her heart is stopped. And the um, anesthesiologist slams his fist into the wall to call the resuscitation team. But what she notices is that at that point, she feels her awareness, like literally going into the deepest backmost recesses of her mind. And it literally feels like she's doing a backward arc into the unknown, leaving her body. And she goes into this beautiful, sparkling, glittering um, darkness. And she said, she's never been so happy in her life. She feels enveloped in peace and joy. At the same time, she says she feels this presence, like this overpowering, like wonderful, intelligent presence. And she then hears a voice and that is, you must live. And she said at that point, she was thinking, no, I don't need to live. I'm very happy here. But she then feels herself, her awareness spiraling back downward into the confines of the operating room. And she sees that at that point, this resuscitation team bursts through these double doors into the operating room. She sees her surgeon working on what he called was his first three minute hysterectomy because she was bleeding to death in effect and he had to do that. Um, and um, then this white haired gentleman like walks in this elderly um, surgeon, he comes in without saying a word, reaches into her blood filled abdomen, finds her aorta, clamps it shut. And she said, that's the most painful experience. She feels the hands on the aorta, but she also knows she's going to live. And then her heart starts, stop, starts again. And one of the physicians near her whispers in her ear, your baby lives, you have a darling baby girl. And then she goes unconscious again and wakes up again in the recovery room. And she's surrounded by her husband, who's also an MD and all of the team. And she has a tracheal tube in her throat and she motions to them not to speak until she's given something to write with. And then she word, writes on this napkin words to this effect. I know my heart stopped. I know my uterus is out. I know I have a baby girl. And they couldn't explain it. 
And in fact, to this day, her husband cannot understand. He knows this is her reality, but he has not been able to switch into understanding that maybe the world has this infinite awareness within it. And yet uh, the, the doctors and she went on a television show after this happened in Boston, and they said that they have no way of explaining how this could be, that she knew all of that when basically her heart had stopped, her brain was flatlined, et cetera. So yeah. that's how I got into it. Yes. And then I began doing more <laughs> research. And, and in fact, then after I wrote my book, I gave a talk at the International Association of Near-Death Studies. And when they heard my talk and we began interacting together, they said, hey, would you like to be our research director? The current one had just retired recently. And I thought that would be fun. <laughs> so that's why yeah. I'm doing that now. Yeah. Well, I think that hearing that would get a lot of people into it, wouldn't it? I mean, that's yeah. a really amazing, amazing incident, amazing story. Um, when I spoke to your colleague Bruce Bruce Grayson, um, we talked about the Pam Reynolds Pam Reynolds's case and a few others, but and and that one you just shared was amazing. Are, are there any others that you could share, either that you think are the most remarkable or that are kind of unknown uh, under the radar sort of cases? Um, but yeah, if you just wanted to share one or two, that would be that would be awesome. Well, you know, I think one of them that. Um, is simply a very good one because it reminds us about the conflict between the near-death experiencer and the physician. And this is Leslie Lupo. And she is basically a person from Tucson, Arizona. She um, ended up being hit, I believe, in the head by a horse when she was trying to feed the horses and get them unsaddled. And the horses were having an argument and she was in the middle of the argument. Mm. So she went into a coma and during the coma, she had this amazing near-death experience. And when she came back, she wanted to tell her family and the physician about it because it was the most important thing that had happened in her life. The family didn't want to hear about it. They said, you, you just had a hallucination. It was a dream. Please stop talking about it. And she couldn't. She was so excited. And then the doctor said the same thing. And finally, when she wanted to tell him more, he said, look, if you mention that one more time, you are going over to the psychiatric unit across the street and we are going to give you drugs. And she shut up. Of course she did. But yeah. it's like, how is it that a doctor would not allow a person to have their own experience? Why they would actually feel it necessary to threaten them with drugs to shut them up when everybody is allowed to have their own experience of the world around them. So I think that what IONS is trying to do and many other um, groups now are trying to do is educate the medical professionals. And really the basic point is everyone is allowed to have their own truth about their experience in the world. And you don't have to tell them whether it's wrong or right. You can listen to them. If it's not harming them in any way, allow them to have their own truth. Even if for you, it can't be true because you are a materialist. So I think that that's the key issue, like nurturing these people in the hospital rather than trying to make life very difficult for them. Yeah. No, definitely. And and I hadn't come across that one. So that's, uh, that's amazing. Um, I kind of we could we could talk more about NDEs and we could have talked more about meditation, but I think we should we should keep rolling. Um, so in terms of end of life experiences, um, they kind of couple well with NDEs. So terminal lucidity is one that jumps out at me. But would you what would you say kind of or what are your thoughts on end of life experiences and how they relate and what they tell us again? Yes, two things about that. One is that there are studies going on now, again, with people that interact with IONS, one of the researchers um, who is doing shared end-of-life experiences, which I think is interesting mm -hmm. too, where sometimes when, for example, your mother may be dying, you somehow are able to go with her 
part way into that sort of like end of life realm. And you may even be able to see some of the um, relatives on the other side that are waiting for her. But then there's a particular point where you're told you have to go back now and she goes on her way. So it allows the relative to then see the reality of that transition and not be so afraid of it themselves. So that's one example. And of course, the other one is another paper that I've written with Chris Rowe, um, Evelyn Elsesser and others on after death communication, where then mm. the person who is dying often comes to you as they are dying. And um, it might be in a dream and it might be in a waking moment where literally they're about to leave, but they wanna say goodbye to you. And they're right there with you as if they are truly alive in front of you saying goodbye. And then you realize, you find out later, that's exactly the moment that they died when they came to you. Yeah. So I think those are very fascinating ones. And um, I think the other thing that we're doing right now is the third one that we were talking about, which is terminal lucidity. And this is something that's been researched by Bruce Grayson, by Alexander Batiani and others. And it's where a person who is at the end of life due to some sort of a, an illness, and it could be Alzheimer's disease or dementia where their brain is no longer functioning, or it could be a coma due to cancer. It could be a number of things where the body and the brain are shutting down. They are, have been comatose or unable to interact with people. And suddenly within like minutes to hours to maybe the day of their death, they become lucid again, they recognize everyone, they say goodbye to them, they have a beautiful conversation, and then they pass away and they die. And the reason this is so interesting is that you can do an autopsy, a um, autopsy of the brain and you see the brain couldn't be able to do that. I mean, there are some examples of a person with stroke, for example, that literally couldn't move their body, but sat up in bed, raised their arms, said hello to their husband that they saw, you know, in mm -hmm. the room and then fell back and died. And the daughter was there watching and it's like, how did mother do that? You know, I mean, she, she couldn't move, but that's yeah. what happened. So I think it's a fascinating issue that says, for me, it says our spirit, our mind, our awareness is more than just a product of the neurons in our brain because there should be no way that that could happen. Mm -hmm. And I should say that right now I'm part of a team which includes Bruce Grayson, Chris Rowe, Michael Nam, another person that's done a lot on terminal lucidity, um, Natasha Hassel-Matamua, who's from New Zealand, a nice a large group of people doing research on pediatric cases of terminal lucidity with a pediatric doctor who's named Philip Roars from the University of Virginia, where he has encountered these children that might be two and a half years of age and have an autoimmune disease and are dying. And there's nothing more that can be done to them to save them. And at some point the family realizes this and said, okay, we're not gonna make them suffer anymore. We're just gonna like let them be. And at that moment, the child comes back out of a coma um, plays with their toys and has a wonderful time with their family for maybe a few minutes to a few hours and then goes back to sleep and dies. And what we're realizing, I mean, the importance of this for the medical system is that we need to understand when it's best to stop all of these Herculean efforts of medical resuscitation and allow the child to have that time with their parents of really being with them when the child knows they're going to die. The child will often say, you know, basically, I'm going, I'm going home now. Yeah. And then the child dies. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? It's, it's it's wild um have you ever come across again this is maybe similar that you know crisis apparitions but have you come across apparitions in general and like have you done any research into that do you have you 
are you, are you aware of apparitions? What, again, just just talk about it for a minute, if you if you don't. Sure. Mind. Yes. I mean, it, I learned more about it when I realized as I was learning about after-death communication, which Chris Rowe has done research on and Evelyn Elsesser for a long time, I realized that work was done in the mid to late 1800s about this very, very carefully in England. And a, a group of um, scientists that were you know, very well respected wanted to know, are psychic phenomena real or not? And so they did these careful interviews with people throughout England and other parts of Europe and the United States and published these beautiful um, accounts of these things. And in fact, one is available free online. You can really look at their entire set of all of these interviews. And, and because they're scientists, they're very careful to say, this is what the person actually saw in their um, a crisis apparition. In effect, they saw this particular person who we find out later had just died come into their room. You know, they were there, but maybe they were there, but translucent. So you could sort of see through them. And they said these particular things or did these particular things. And then it was verified afterwards that that's exactly the moment that the person died. And they have many, many, many of these cases. And so it's like, well, how can you not believe that this is the case when it has been carefully scientifically documented. And there's no way we can figure out how you could have a hallucination that was so absolutely accurate with the time the person died when you didn't know that they had died. I think that that's the key issue that when these things happen, when it's only verified to you and perhaps others around you that the person died you know, a, a day later after you had it and documented it, I, there doesn't seem to be an easy um, solution that doesn't allow consciousness to actually communicate in what I would call a non-local way from where the person died across the world to you in your own home. Yeah. It's not an apparition, but Bruce told me about um, this, this story of, I think it was a shared NDE basically. Mm -hmm. uh, one of it, I won't tell the whole story now. You probably know it. And if anybody wants to hear it, then find my, watch the episode with Bruce, but it was the, the red sports car. I, you're probably familiar with that one. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It just you made me think of that, and like I say, everybody should go and watch the episode with Bruce after this because that that just such a mind blowing incident to me. That like uh, you can't really reconcile that with with any kind of materialist worldview. Uh, and if anybody's still holding on to a materialist worldview, that's that's the one to listen to. Um, but this is something that six months ago, or approximately six months ago, I would have thought was absolute nonsense. But I've done a significant amount of research into these subjects recently. And mediumship is something that I've had to kind of reconcile. So what are your thoughts on mediumship? I'm assuming you're aware of lots of the research into it and the, the you know, the certifying of said some of these mediums. I, I still believe that the vast majority of people that call themselves mediums probably aren't. I mean, that's that's just my gut feeling. But I, I think we're talking about the minority or whichever number of them are legitimate or seem to be legitimate. So, again, just kind of uh, share your thoughts on that, if you don't mind. Well, so I, first I want to say that when I was just finishing my book, Infinite Awareness, I went back to the University of Virginia to talk with Ed Kelly and Bruce Grayson mm. and Jim Tucker. I'm going to talk to Ed in a, in a few months. Great. So, so I, I said, hey, you wrote this wonderful book called Irreducible Mind. I read it from cover to cover and loved it. And I'm trying to wrap up my book and have like my last chapter. And I'd like to mm -hmm. talk with you before I do that. And so Ed Kelly very sweetly said, sure, come out. And in fact, I stayed with him and his family. And then I went into the laboratory and I talked with all with everybody there. And yeah. He then, he said to me, I, you know, I read your whole book because I had given it to him in advance. And he said, I'm just puzzled about one thing. And I said, well, what's that? And he said, you don't have any information on mediumship. And I just laughed. And I said, well, <laughs> I have to say that 
from my own background, I've always been a little leery about it, but here's partly my reason for being leery. I hear people occasionally talking about like negative spirits that can begin to come mm. to you and perhaps invade your life when you don't want them to. And I thought if I just don't believe in it, then they won't be around. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I laughed because, because, but he made me aware of this. And I began reading carefully about mediumship, including um, William James at Harvard, who was very much interested in mediumship and has a lot of great documented cases. And then I started looking at the literature that's out there right now by a number of well-respected people. Mm. And I realized that in fact, there is good evidence for mediumship being real. And in fact, I mean, Suzanne Giesman is one of the people that is a current um, day medium. And I think Gary Schwartz at the University of Arizona has worked with her on various studies and shown that she's very, very highly accurate at telling you things that nobody should be able to know from the person on the other side. And then it shown that actually it's accurate. So there are a number of those people around the world. And I think the point that most people, including Suzanne Giesman and others make is that we can all enhance our abilities because really when your loved one comes to you from the other side in a dream, that's a form of mediumship. You have become a medium in that moment when you're receiving that information from them. So in certain circumstances, many people receive that information. Just others seem to be more attuned to it than others. And yeah. I want to say one more thing about it because I, so at one point I took a course on mediumship just to see if I could learn more. I'm always saying, okay, I'm going to be curious. I'm going to see what yeah, I can. Learn. That's good. And one of the people there um, said that she was rather psychic. And if we wanted, and we were having trouble really connecting with anybody on the other side during our sessions, she could look and see if there was something blocking us. And so I said, sure, that would be great because I'm such a scientist. I, I, I certainly don't have those intuitive abilities to any real extent. And afterwards she said, you know, Marjorie, what it is is that your intellect is so strong, it is in the way. Now I can believe that. I don't know how to get my intellect out of the way, however, but it's a little bit like when I was doing the Reiki and I could just move into meditation and then the energy could flow through me. It was like, she was saying that same thing, let the intellect out of the way and see if you can be in that calm place and then perhaps receive this information. So, you know, I think that's partly the issue of whether some people are authentic and some people might not be. It could be that the ones that are not so authentic are the ones that occasionally get it, but most of the time they're wrong because they just don't have that attunement. Like if I were to call myself a mediumship, I'd be wrong most of the time. So I don't say anything like that. Did you have, have you ever had your own experience that you believe like was successful? Like you believe you, you were able to communicate with somebody or anything like that? Well, you know, not me, but I, I mean, I certainly remember, in fact, my sister is interested in this sort of thing too. And so she had heard about a medium that was supposed to be very good. And so she said, well, why don't we go ahead and <clears throat> have a session with her? And we did. And the medium did say very interesting things about, um, in fact, two of my sister's um, previous um, boyfriends that had come to difficult ends that were um, very um What's the word disconcerting? One um, had diabetes and he died in a diabetic coma when no one was around. And what happened is that the, my sister said nothing about them ahead of time, but the woman said, these two people are coming around and she names like the first letters of their names, which were the right first letters. And she said that this one person said that actually dying was very, very easeful. It was just like, like moving into a, a swoosh, like a meditative state. And then I was gone. And it allowed my sister to stop carrying the guilt that nobody was there when he died in the style diabetic coma. So yeah. I think those are some of those points where you feel that it, you, I have no idea if it's absolutely that she was authentic or not, but it, it rang true in that moment. Yeah. 
And I think some of the most convincing things in regards to mediumship is with like the Forever Family Foundation and the Winbridge Institute. Like they've done like double blind and I think even like triple, quadruple blind, like, uh, you know, testing of these people. And I mean, there's there really is no other kind of obvious way to explain it other than it, what they say is happening is happening. Exactly. Right? I mean, that's um, what I said. So it's so having gone from the sort of agnostic, but I don't even want to go there now. I'm a person that actually says, look, I can't ignore the evidence. The evidence seems to tell me that this is the case. Yeah, absolutely. I guess without the double, triple blind, you can kind of make the argument that maybe it's some form of telepathy or, or sight. But with the, the blind, the blind testing, then it's, yeah, it, it doesn't really fit with that. Um, in terms of other forms of after death communication, because I know you've, you've done some other stuff with this, um, like just just talk a little bit about, well, I guess, other forms of after death communication. And if you I don't know if you have any advice for anybody that wants to engage in that kind of thing, that wants to try and contact the deceased loved one or something. If 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 not, if you're not comfortable doing that, that's fine. Um, but I was just, yeah, wondering. Well, and I think that what I would suggest is that people actually go to a medium that uh, ha is, has a really strong reputation because many of those people have courses. And mm -hmm. like me, when I took this course, it was like a six week course and you are divided up into small groups to practice during the week. So you get practice sessions, you get tips on how to do it, and then you just try it out with each other. And and you, you try to see if you can sense a presence behind the other person, and then you try to describe it, and then you see whether it rings true for anything that they might know about that particular um, person that you might be or image you might be seeing. So to me, it's practice. And I think that's what almost everyone says. The other thing they often say is that you have to really want to do it. And you can't simply say, I can't do it. If you say, I can't do it, you won't be able to do it. So I think it's a little like meditation. You keep trying and you do it again and again and again. In fact, you're reminding me, I think there's some story about a group of people in England that wanted to do mediumship type of work. Um, mm -hmm. In effect, after death communication. Uh, and so they met together in someone's house every single Saturday evening. And I think, and I could be wrong on the about, amount of time, but I think they said for like six years, nothing happened. And then all of a sudden they began getting these presences in the room with them and then, and they were all feeling it and they were all acknowledging it. So I thought, well, that's interesting. Having that much patience, I would have given up after like three months myself, but they kept with it. And then something actually happened. So maybe their own minds were becoming quieter over those six years so that they finally could begin to sense those presences. I don't know. That wasn't Stuart Alexander, was it by any chance? And I don't know. I don't remember the name. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll I'll send you some info about him after. He's, he's somebody I'm going to be talking to in the future who's been on that kind of yeah. that kind of road where he just had patience for years and years with nothing, um, yes. and then had a breakthrough. Um, what are your thoughts on reincarnation? Like these children with past life memories. Again, it's something that kind of is related and and lots of these people that you've mentioned and that i've mentioned have kind of done some work into this too i mean jim tucker i think you mentioned jim tucker's name a little bit earlier so he's obviously a specialist of this at the university of virginia um so yeah what are your thoughts on that and and where in your journey did you begin to kind of because i'm guessing you've kind of accepted that in some form or fashion 
Yeah. So, so once again, as I was writing my, again, the, the book, Infinite Awareness, The Awakening of a Scientific Mind is about my own journey from the time when I was dissecting gophers when I was five, all the way through today. And so as I began to want to know whether consciousness truly is fundamental, I had to really start looking carefully at the research because as a materialist scientist, I did, I ignored the literature. I knew it couldn't be true. So why would you look it up on uh, one of the research um, indexes like PubMed? But then I'm writing my book and it's like, well, I have to find out. So I am curious. So I go to look up the research on cases suggestive of reincarnation and up comes Ian McGilchrist, excuse me, Ian Stevenson's name. And Ian Stevenson, I find out, was a psychiatric professor at University of Virginia for many, many years. And he did over 2,500 cases on children that believe they had had a past life. And I'm going, wow. And then he talks about how he carefully documented these cases like they would in a legal system of trying to interview the children and the parents separate from the people that they think they might've been and to really co corroborate the stories of one family versus say the family that the child thought they were from. and then went out and carefully collected the data and looked at it. And he has so many cases that, again, I don't see how you can explain them from any other point of view. And therefore it becomes very, very strong. And I have, I think three or four cases in my um, book about that. And of course, some people say, well, maybe if it was in India, that's just because the Indians believe in that sort of thing. But of course, then um, Ian Stevenson and then Jim Tucker have these cases from the United States, which are equally amazing. Um, yeah. from people that were Christians that didn't believe in reincarnation. And then the child is saying, hey, you know, this is who I really am. And it's like, really? <laughs> mm -hmm. So I think that that's the point where once again, I have to say, okay, doesn't make sense, but here are the data. And I think what you're reminding me about the hardest part that I noted as I was writing up this chapter was what Ian Stevenson called the scars related to the previous mm. mode of death yeah. that are now in the current child. And I think in one case, the child um, was killed by a gun that I think went in like through his temple in front of one ear and out through the back of his head. And the current child has a scar, small here and large here as it went out. And it's like, how do I deal with that? It's like, for me, somebody that believes in genetics being the sole way that my body forms what it is, they're saying, hey, it's not so simple. Genetics are important, but there's this also, there's another factor that can enter in. And we might call that an epigenetic factor. So yeah. I think we're accepting epigenetics more. And so now I'm curious about that sort of thing. But so, mm -hmm. yes, what happened is that after reading case after case after case, I began to say, well, I have to begin to believe this because the evidence has accumulated that shows me that I don't see how it could be otherwise. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. I mean, you, you, when you first find it, you kind of look at it from the point of view of, yeah, how can I explain this? And, and again, it's something that a year ago, I probably wasn't really bought into at all. Um, in fact, my whole journey started when I watched the Netflix series Surviving Death based on Leslie Keen, Leslie Kane's book. Um, yes which just totally turned my world upside down um, or was the beginning part of that, that process. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's compelling. There's a lot of compelling cases. And you said about like, people would say that in, in India or wherever the culture is that kind of has reincarnation built in that that's where they all are. But it, you can look at it the other way, can't you? And say, in fact, there's a lot less on record in our countries in America and Europe, but that's quite possibly because we don't have it accepted into our worldview in our cultures. And so people either 
ignore it or they hush it up they're like they if they if their kid starts coming up with memories it's like okay let's not tell anybody about that because we don't, yeah. they don't <laughs> you know and also if it doesn't fit with the religions that we have here and that kind of thing i mean there's so many reasons for it but it's fascinating and like you said it's kind of it's kind of confused it's like how does these sort of things all fit together i don't know but maybe we'll never be able to find out everything um until the day that we do um psi psychic phenomena again can you kind of just uh, riff on that for a little bit what your thoughts are what you kind of believe the evidence suggests in terms of like telepathy remote viewing um precognition as well these kind of things um and if you've had any first-hand experiences too Sure. So, I mean, first of all, I should mention that when I was writing my book, I began looking at these things, especially um, I was looking at um, the work that was from the Paralab at, um, at Princeton University. And Dean Radin was a part of a lot of those mm. experiments where they were trying to change the output of random number generators. And it was yeah. powerful to see that, yes, you could, with an intention, change the output to be higher or lower than it should be normally randomly. And also that people that had a meditative background were better at changing it higher or lower lower because I believe their focusing abilities were much, much stronger. That's what meditation does. It makes you a very strong focuser. So that was my start of it. I found that fascinating. And then when you see that actually people can change the growth of, for example, bacterial cultures by again, sending them positive nurturing thoughts, et cetera, all evidence that's been proven in the laboratory, that was amazing. And then I had my own experience at a workshop. So I was giving a talk at a um, two-day workshop, three-day workshop in New Zealand, in Auckland, New Zealand. And Dean Radin was also invited as one of the speakers to give a talk there and do a, a short workshop. And in his workshop, he decided to have us all practice what you could recall remote viewing, but it would be more like um, a precognitive experience where mm -hmm. he's going to show a slide on a PowerPoint slide on a screen and before he shows it, all the people in the room are supposed to draw on a sheet of paper what they believe is going to be shown in the next you know, 15 to 30 seconds. And so the first few times he tried that, I was totally wrong. I, I was trying to get my mind to think about it. And my mind couldn't do it. And the image was wrong. And then I said, look, I'm just going to stop this. And I'm simply going to let my fingers draw whatever my fingers want to draw. And I'm going to keep my mind out of it. And then I became amazingly accurate. And I still remember one was like, I think it was some of those windmills, the um, air windmills that you see all over Southern California, um, the long stick, and then all of these propellers on the top. And, and that's exactly what I drew, not knowing what I was doing. Wow. So it, it, it was like, again, in a wake up call for me, well, I can do it, but I don't know how to let my mind get out of the way most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. And there it was. So then, I mean, then I began reading all the more about it. And I highly recommend a book by a woman named Elizabeth Mayer. It's called Extraordinary Knowing that was written, I think, a number of years ago. She actually unfortunately died not too long after she wrote the book, but it's about all of these ways of extraordinary knowing that are these psychic phenomena. And she goes into detail on, of course, the Stanford Research Institute remote viewing research. And exactly how that seemed to work again, where you're quieting the mind down and then these various people that were very, very good at it could work for our defense department and find out what was happening in the Soviet Union building mm. submarines in Siberia and then actually draw pictures of it and then it could be corroborated um, later on. So what was interesting to me though, is that even though they had careful data 
on all of these phenomena. The Defense Department, partly because I think it was the National Research Council doesn't believe this is possible because we're in a materialistic world and there can be no non-local communication. They basically ended up writing a report saying this was there was nothing that was actually proven that this was all hogwash and they were gonna end the program. And it's like, why on earth couldn't they accept, couldn't they be curious enough to carefully look at the data instead of trying to ignore any data that was positive and only looking at a few trials that were negative? I think it's a powerful book because she carefully goes into the whole process of how that system was, set of research studies was shut down because you get the scientists in. And the other thing I think interesting about the scientists, what I think she said one of the researchers at SRI said, Stanford Research Institute is that it, the highest level scientists are actually curious. It's the middle management who are the more, what I would call the more mediocre thinkers that say this can't be. And so they don't wanna go there. And so they basically shut it down. So it's one of those great things. And it's sort of sad that in our society right now we have a battle between two worldviews. Yeah. And interestingly, I think our general public is a little bit more open and curious. Like, I mean, you and, and me and others and most of the middle management scientists are not curious enough to really look in carefully. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's funny that Dean Dean Radin, Dean Radin, I never know which pronunciation, but he's kind of the guy that got me to open open to this topic as well. Yeah. Um, via his book, The Conscious Universe, which was kind of my next stepping stone after Leslie's surviving death. Um, but yeah, it's just fascinating. And it's still totally not accepted that there is a massive body of evidence suggesting that there is something right. right. Um, yeah. And and what he kind of says in the book and, and it's so true is that even if it's only like a 1%, you know, even if it's only the tiniest effect, if there's any effect like non-locally, then that is huge. That's, is. that's yeah. profound. Um, so yeah, I don't know how strong it is and what the potential is with it. And I'm, you know, who knows? I don't think there's any like stranger things. I don't think there's anybody throwing people across the room with their eyes. I mean, maybe, maybe once in a blue moon, somebody gets like an incredibly, incredible amount of this or is able to harness this. I have no idea, but it's fascinating nonetheless. And what you said about kind of having to let your mind just go quiet to, to let it come in, that may be in, in my kind of humble opinion, why lots of people have never myself included have never really had any experience like this because it's so hard yeah to like we said earlier it's hard to meditate for a lot of people it's probably even harder to completely shut down and just allow things to come in because yeah. like well, me personally I'm... sorry yeah. go on well, i was just going to say anything that comes in i i'll just think i don't know if it's coming in or if it's me putting it in you know it's what i'm <laughs> Yeah, and it's true. And I, what I was about to say is that when I have talked now to people who do remote viewing research, who do mediumship research, any sort of these sorts of research, and I talk to them, they say that they have to meditate every single day because that is their entree into those states. And that would surprise me because I was doing meditation for the pure joy of meditation, but I realized it's useful for any of these other phenomena that require mm. us to turn down that intellect and then yeah. be able 
things. And I want to mention one more person that you may have talked to before, um, and that's Stefan Schwartz, who wrote an amazing book called The Secret Vaults of Time. I haven't they- yet, but maybe one day yeah. I have been in touch with him, but carry on, The Secret Vaults yeah, so, of Time. I mean, one of them was, in fact, the sort of thing that you were talking about, that um, when you truly quiet the mind down, it's amazing what these people can experience. And I think one of the examples that I loved was this man, Stefan Ozoviecki, who was alive in Russia um, before World War One, and um, then he was killed by the Nazis in, um, I think it was Poland um, after, during World War II, but he had these abilities, these First of all, when he was even a teenager, he had the psychic ability to be basically put in a straight jacket, um, lying on the floor and move these giant columns in you know, this Moscow um, beautiful um, house, moving those columns across the room X number of inches while he was straight jacketed. And then he later improved his skills when he was in um, more near the Siberian area by studying with an Indian master um, during his college years. And then during the war, he profoundly um, improved his abilities so that he could hold on to artifacts from say 20,000 years ago and then tell what was happening to that artifact when it was first used and made, you know, in caveman times. And, and he could say, and of course the museum people knew where it was from and he was saying where it was from as he was talking about it. He could feel those vibrations again, talk about remote viewing. And so, mm. I mean, that, that's a wonderful book talking about a number of these situations that are various manifestations of remote viewing. Wow, what was that, the name of that person or? Stefan Ozoviecki. Wow. Okay. I'm going to have to check that out because that's, yeah. that's fascinating. Um, so moving on a little bit, but staying very much in the same ballpark. And this question is maybe like the, the most open and biggest one so far. And it's kind of just a topic and we can kind of skim through it. And we've kind of touched on it a lot. Everything we've talked about has been related to it. So consciousness, your thoughts on consciousness, obviously it's clear by this point that you don't think it's a product of the brain. Um, do you think it's like entirely non-local? How do you think that works? Is it fundamental in your opinion to, to the universe, to everything? Um, again, I know this is like one of the great unknowns, but that's the fun of it. So, so what are your kind of thoughts at this point in your career, in your life? Yes, I do believe that it's fundamental. And I take that partly from some of the philosophers that have really been thinking about this. Bernardo Kastrup in the Netherlands Mm -hmm. is one of those people that has a very strong argument about this. And he says that absolutely, yes, that um, when you look at all of the different um, philosophical lenses, including materialism, they always break down and don't have strong evidence across the whole gamut of research, except for something that, um, that we might call idealism, which is basically a non-dual philosophy, that we are all part of one consciousness. And I think what I like about Bernardo Castrop and Ed Kelly's article that they wrote, I think, in Scientific American, is this analogy that we might think of universal consciousness breaking down into all of the individual consciousnesses that are you and me and the rest of the world as being basically what we would call um, a little bit like dissociative identity disorder or um, schizophrenia in a certain sense that that um, in, 
universal consciousness we might want to call God becomes all the individual consciousness of the world and then forgets that it's also all the other things and forgets who it really was. And so it acts out as if, as if it is separate. And so what then has to happen with meditation is that you bring your awareness back to that unity where you see that, oh, you know, Ben and I really are one consciousness is coming from different points of awareness in different parts of the world, but we still are the same consciousness. We just have forgotten our expansive nature it's fascinating and that there's there's so much to consciousness that like it's just so hard to wrap my head around you know um i think the i mean it's clearly not a product of the brain as far as i'm concerned at this point but i mean beyond that like i it's just so hard to say everybody that i've been talking to recently though I, the fundamental is coming up a lot like um i spoke to stanley Krippner recently and that's that's firmly what he believes um what he believes the evidence suggests i should say um do you believe that there are structures or do you see structures in physics that can explain or allow the things you've observed in psychology and parapsychology to be possible? I do. And again, I'm not a quantum physicist, but I think that when I talk to people who are quantum physicists, mm. they absolutely believe that's the case. And one example is Federico Fagin, um, originally from Italy. He wrote a book called Silicon, which again, I highly recommend, where he actually is the inventor of the microprocessor in Silicon Valley in California, which has made him billions of dollars. And in the middle of doing all of this, when he was trying to create a computer that was conscious, he realized mm -hmm. that's never gonna happen. And he also had an amazing like spiritual experience where he had this energy of like light and love, like flowing outward into the world from his heart in the middle of the night. And he began, the way he described it is he began to realize that he is both a particle and a wave within infinite consciousness. He's that individual identity of feeling he's Federico Fagin, but he's also a part of this broader like awareness. And he being a physicist by background has written a wonderful chapter in Ed Kelly's book um, that talks about this. And um, he, again, Silicon also does the same thing, his own book. So I think that when I listen to the quantum physicists who also have this wider understanding and viewpoint, their arguments sound very, very plausible to me as a neuroscientist. Yeah, I agree. The thing with the wave and the uh, the particle is like the, the double slit experiment, isn't it? That's like yeah. uh, some mind mind blowing stuff. Yeah. Um, what do you believe needs to change for the mainstream? You know, the the mainstream to fully accept that a materialist worldview is not fully aligned with, and hence does not fully explain reality. It's an interesting point, and I think that there are a couple of things. One is that. Partly our worldview determines exactly how we actually treat the planet, each other, and mm -hmm. ourselves. And so we need to shift our worldview to become a broader worldview that says consciousness um, may in fact be more than just the product of our brain. So that's the first thing, but how do we do that? And one thing I would suggest is that we just, from the beginning of children's education, we actually put a little bit more time into quieting the mind bound. I mean, quieting the mind down is not a religious practice. It's just quieting the mind so that you can get in touch with your creativity. So if we start with that and we train children in mindfulness, and I know that in a number of countries, they're actually in the political organizations of the country, um, different um, groups are actually practicing mindfulness within um, their political um, units. And in fact, in um, Britain, I think there is a group in parliament that does that. There's a particular congressman in the United States is beginning to try to work on that. So again, taking it beyond spirituality and religion per se, but just saying, let's sit down and see what happens when we quiet the mind down. Do we then perhaps 
um, access a part of us that sees what I would call an umbrella view over the polar opposites of the political divisions that we have in the United States and throughout the world right now. In terms of quieting the mind down, do you think that we're like going further and further away from that in some ways? And I mean this in terms of like mobile phones and social media and the fact that nowadays mobile phone is like a computer in your hand and like an advanced one compared to 20 years ago. Like, because again, I'm using myself as an example. Uh, I'm probably not the worst, but I'm definitely not the best. Like pretty much every time, at least sometimes, you know, some days, every time you have a tiny one minute, two minute break, 10 minute, whatever it is, you're on your phone like and, and i'm sure you're not but lots of people are like they'll they'll you know they'll just have a two minute gap in between things and the the habit is just get your phone out and just scroll on something click on some app and scroll and so i personally find myself sometimes slipping into that and i and i just feel like i don't even get five minutes in a day where my brain is quiet because i'm either if I'm relaxing, I'm watching Netflix or if I, or if I'm doing nothing, I'm on my phone or I'm, I'm reading or I'm, you know, talking to somebody There's, I just never sit and do nothing. And I guess before mobile phones, before the internet, it would have been so much more common, even for somebody who'd never meditate and never said the word mindfulness out loud, just to, just to be like you said earlier, just to be like, you go and sit in your garden and you just listen to the birds and look at the sky. Whereas that, I feel like we're losing that, you know, really yeah. fast. Absolutely. And I think that that's the biggest habit that we've gotten into with information being so available. And it's like, mm. who really cares in the long run about how many of those Netflix videos I've seen on consciousness or near-death experiences versus having the experience myself mm. of the stillness of my mind. And I'll give you an example of a New Yorker cartoon that I love, and I'm going to have to like put it in front of me all the time. It's a cartoon showing two doors, for example, like, you know, into some building. And the first door says, lectures on heaven. And the second door says heaven. And everybody is lined up at the lectures on heaven. Nobody is going into the other door. And that to me is what meditation is about. And I get caught up in it too. I'm constantly reading books on consciousness. And it's like, wait a minute, what about sitting out there and just being in nature and being consciousness rather than reading one more article on it and yeah. distracting myself? Yeah. And and even then on another level, it's like sometimes when you're out in nature and, and you're just, you haven't got your phone in your hand, you're thinking about, oh, I'm going to go home and I've got to send these emails and I'm going to watch this thing tonight. And, you know, it's so hard to get away from it sometimes. The technology and the, the advancements we've had, as great as they are on one hand, like the real can be a real, I don't know what the word is, but they're a blessing and a curse, right? Yeah. Well, and for me, the key for myself is to say, what do I want? Do I want peace and tranquility and contentment? Or do we want to solve these problems that I can solve a little bit later on? And then just keep remembering that, oh yeah, the peace and tranquility come from letting those um, chores go away until I get mm. back home again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you're also, so we talked about your the, the research um, director for the International Association of Near-Death Studies. You're also the president of the Academy for Advancement of Post-Materialist Sciences. So can you just tell me a little bit about the Academy and what you do there just for a couple of minutes? Yes, yes. I find that that's been a wonderful academy, partly because we have not only researchers interested in 
consciousness and its mm-hmm. fundamental nature, but also students. And we have a student section. And so um, about every quarter of the year, four times a year, we get all of our students together with me and another one of the faculty members. And we talk about how they can network, how they can find universities where they might do this sort of research. And we include them in some of our projects. So one of the students right now is actually working with us on the Terminal Lucidity Project with the group mm-hmm. from Virginia and England and around the world. So cool. it allows them to jump into research a little bit early and get training with experts. So that's one of the things we do. And we also are publishing volumes. And I highly recommend the volume that we have just put out. It's now on Kindle and soon it will be in paperback called Spiritual Awakenings. And I'm just going to look at it right now. It's scientists and academics describe their experiences. So the beauty I'll try of- and put all these links, by the way, in the description to all the books you've mentioned and all of your other books and everything like that. Um, but please yes. carry on. <laughs> So this book was, I'll maybe take a step back. When we were doing our first two volumes, we were doing them on like, is consciousness primary? These basic philosophical questions. And then I was saying, okay, you're the president. I was told you need to come up with the topic for our next book. And I realized, wow, this is a great opportunity. I want to look at scientists and academics' own experiences of awakening and transformation and document them. So we have 57 different scientists and academics and how they had a spiritual awakening in their life, what it was like, and then how it transformed their life. And they are powerful experiences. So it's like, and for somebody that doesn't have a long attention span, you can read one or two at a time. They're about four pages each and they are amazing. So I highly recommend that book as our current book. And so what we're trying to do is educate the public in this way through these books that are easy to read. And then I also am working with David Lorimer of the Scientific and Medical Network and the Galileo Commission. He's my now next I'm, guest. Yay. Okay. So yes, David Lorimer is a person that I have just really enjoyed working with because he has allowed me as the president of the AAPS to be much more effective in the world because he combines with me and we collaborate on projects like this book. So he has co um, basically supported or sponsored this book with his organization so that it makes it much more easeful to actually interact with the scientists around the world and have the book come out. So um, he is just like me, very, very dedicated to sharing this information, both with other scientists, with the world in general, and with students to try to educate them as to how they can begin to do research in the area. Wow. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And that book does sound really cool. Like I said, I'll put a link in the description. Um, so we've kind of, we talked about this a lot, like, uh, you know, what happens after we die, but I haven't asked you kind of directly. So you you do believe, or do you believe that consciousness in some form or another can survive or does can and or does survive uh, the death of our body our bodily death and to tag on to that sorry just to tag on to that already massive question do you believe that personality in maybe in some form could be retained Yes. And I I think that that's obviously a controversial um, subject, even among people that believe in that consciousness survives death. So I think most people that I know right now in this particular um, realm of research believe that consciousness survives death. But the question is, how does it? Mm. And some people say, well, you simply merge back into like this infinite awareness and you're aware of everything going on around you, but you let go of your personality. And other people say, no, um, from the after death communication research, 
research and the mediumship research and the, um, the cases suggestive of reincarnation research it suggests that at least many people retain a personality and that may influence their coming back another lifetime. And it also seems to influence their communication with their loved ones back in this world. And we don't know how long that happens, but it appears for at least many years for many of them, they seem to retain that personality constellation, I might call it. So um, does that last forever? Very good question. I, I have no idea, but my own intuition is that there must be some aspect of a person that retains that because so often I've even heard of great masters um, actually appearing to come to somebody in a dream and talking to them with the form in the dream of their body as they were on this planet. And of course, the same thing can happen with a grandmother, something like that. So I'm not sure how that would happen if they didn't retain some aspect of, or have the ability to perhaps enrobe themselves with that aspect to communicate with somebody on this side, even though that's not who they really are in this broader realm on the other side. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that about the enrobing themselves with something, because there's quite a lot of cases, aren't there, where I've heard of people that would sense a loved one in the room or something and they'll, they'll smell the cologne or they'll smell something to do with them or, you know, things like that. It's not always visual or even kind of, uh, you know, uh, telepathic or mental or anything like that. It can be, yeah, something else. But I think it's just so fascinating. Like, I mean, it is, of course, what, what happens afterwards. And there's so many, so, so much to it that we've talked about already today, you know, like mediumship, the reincarnation, like you say, um, I do think, I mean, what's my opinion? Nothing, but I, I think some, some form of personality is retained. Some form of the soul is mm -hmm. retained. Like you said, for how long, or is it, is it eternal? Is it on a constant, you know, cyst like changing? Is it, are we constantly, do we, I like to think that we have the, the kind of option. We have a choice after we, mm -hmm. after we pass on. I like to think that's what it is. Like, okay, do you want to, go back and try again do you want to hang here in in paradise do you want to or like in this realm whatever it is do you want to you know go and be a ghost or something and maybe some other options that we won't know until until we get there but yeah i i appreciate you sharing your thoughts on it um is there anything else you want to say on that topic before we kind of change slightly yeah i mean there's one thing that i found very interesting so i listen to a lot of um people's experiences of near death, et cetera. And there was this mm -hmm. one particular podcast where a young man was talking about an experience he had, but it was an experience actually of being on the other side before he came into this life. And he said something interesting. He said, on the other side, <clears throat> I met another being that seemed to be much more bright and much more luminous than the other people, including myself around him. And I had some sort of a communication with him where I said, well, how is it that you are so bright and so um, you know, lustrous? And he said, I was down there on the other side in the three-dimensional realm of the world. And you learn things there that bring more brightness to you on this side. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, that's interesting because I think those things we learn are often the challenges that we find as suffering, but they help us grow in compassion for ourselves and understanding about the world around us. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. You you obviously familiar with um, James Leininger's case of, of yeah. past life memories. I've, I always kind of found it so fascinating, the thing. I mean, I know there are some people that believe that, you know, that case is not a valid or not a strong 
uh, evidence of reincarnation but then equally there are people that do and and i know jim tucker refuted the person i think it's michael suduth that, that put yeah. out some papers so that there's you know there's a bit of a dialogue there but it's in my in my mind it's still pretty compelling and it's still pretty hard to 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 reconcile all of it but there was one thing that he said where he he said to his dad he said to bruce who i spoke to by the way um on this podcast a few months ago he's the episode's already out uh, he said that he chose bruce and andrea as his parents he was like uh, yes. he said, i knew i knew you'd be a good dad it's like that's why i chose you he's like what and and he was able to say something to the effect of like uh, he was able to place where they were when he, chose, he was like oh it was five years ago or something at this big pink hotel in hawaii yeah. and and you know who knows who knows like um but if he did or if that's possible or if somehow that that happened then that is yeah. wild um okay so let's change let's change track a little bit here um because I, I don't want to keep you too much longer just got a couple of questions left before i let you get going um on ufos because that's obviously something that, that i like to delve into on this podcast too in a big way um what are you again what are your thoughts have you come across anybody that have you ever seen one um have you aware of much of the research into it or much of the you know the the happenings recently um so i guess i start there with your kind of general and i've never seen a ufo myself at the same time i was at a conference at sln with jeff kripal Mm -hmm. who does a lot of research in this area and again he's at rice university he's a very very um credible um academic and i What I found interesting about him is he said that when he has looked at a lot of these cases um, related to UFOs is that he he was looking at them also related to cases of people seeing lights and other things throughout like the last 2000 years that are described in history. Mm -hmm. And what he mentioned was that, in fact, it's probably that these have occurred throughout history and they might be spiritual um, visions or they might be actual real realities, but everybody interprets them in a different way depending on their view of the world. So 2000 years ago, we didn't talk about UFOs. So they were called something else. They might've been called angels coming down these Mm -hmm. bright angels speaking to them. And now we have a different view based on the filters of our brain and how we interpret them today. So they may be universal phenomena and they could be beings from other um, planets or something like that. We don't know, but certainly um, there are a lot of characteristics that are simpler across the ages. Yeah. It's fascinating when you look, yeah, going back, back in time. I mean, there's so many like you know accounts but also like paintings and things like that i think you're right that there's there could be some kind of bizarre overlap between all of this i don't know if there is and i and i certainly don't think that that would explain all of the ufo stuff i think i i think the most simple explanation for a lot of it would be that it's just an extraterrestrial civilization coming here in some physical craft that i think that will explain some of it and that certainly would be one of the easier to stomach um claims but then who knows and there's all these things with orbs right and there's things with orbs in, that relate to to near death experiences and consciousness and and yeah so who who knows how far that goes um have you ever heard of i think i think it's called ce5 so it's like basically have you have you ever come across anybody that contacted a conscious non-human entity via meditation say like these ufo pilots basically whoever they are or whatever the ufo are uh-huh. no no okay cuz that's the thing that that i think it's becoming more known Mm-hmm. Um, I don't I don't know the intricacies of it, but I think you basically kind of meditate and some people claim that they are able to communicate with these lights in the sky or whatever, you know, is going on there and they're able to elicit some kind of visible response. 
Um, I've never tried it. I I don't know. You know, I don't really have a strong opinion on it one way or another. But I think it's quite fascinating, and it ties in again to a lot of a lot of this stuff. Um, what about Dr. Gary Nolan? Have you ever come across any of his research? No, I haven't. Okay. I, I mean, I'll send you a link after this as well. well I'll, I'll put it in the description too. Now I say that. Um, but he just uh, he just did a fascinating interview with, um, and I don't agree with this guy's politics, generally speaking, but Tucker Carlson in America um, on like a main some mainstream show talking all about his work, where he's done work on people that have had UFO encounters and the physical changes that he's observed in the brain um, after this encounter. And like, I don't, again, I don't know the intricacies of it, um, but it's pretty fascinating stuff. Like the, it's kind of the more hard science of the UFO stuff, I guess. Um, but it's something maybe you should have a look at it. It's really, really interesting. Um, I'll send you the links after. Um, so I've got a couple of questions left and then I'll let you get going. Um, pretty much everything we've discussed so far is very strange in its own way. And, and a lot of people listening will be thinking a lot of it is very out there. Um, mm -hmm. A majority of people will probably dismiss a lot of it actually without really looking into it. Um, but what would you say is like the strangest phenomenon that you've researched that most people would dismiss, but that you are confident or believe or think that there is something to? Well, you know, actually, what I would probably go back to are some of the near-death experiences that people have had that Bruce Grayson and others have documented. Because mm. I think our, when I tell my scientific colleagues that a person basically was flatlined, and they then um, left their operating room. And I think in one case, a, a story of one person, they literally went through these different um, stories of the hospital. And the next story up, they found, and they're telling now that the person, the nurse, after they've um, awakened at the end of this, that there were all of these strange, like they looked like mannequins that were around this mm -hmm. whole room. And they were in all these odd positions. And there were all of these computers in the center of the room. And she then talked about going further up and going you know, beyond everything. And when the um, nurse actually is talking to her afterwards, the nurse realizes that that is their particular laboratory where they're training the nurses in um, cardiopulmonary resuscitation and all these sorts of things with mannequins. So in fact, the person had seen something that nobody would know about um, that was right, you know, the next floor up. So it's like, to me, those are strange from our regular point of view. And to me, those are the examples of why I believe that consciousness exists beyond the activity of the brain and the cardiac rhythms of our, um, our heart. Yeah, absolutely. There's another one that you just reminded me of where a woman just woke up from an, I think she was rushed into hospital for some kind of emergency surgery. Um, and, and I think she was traveling as well. So she wasn't from the area. And anyway, I think she woke up and spoke to a nurse and said that she'd seen, I may be getting like little bits wrong here, but some kind of shoe on a windowsill, like a few floors up. Have you, have you heard of this one? Exactly. The tennis shoe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just, again, I thought that that's, it's so hard to reconcile because again, if, even if you really want to try and find a, a materialist explanation, a, a, you know, you'd say, okay, so she's, she knows the area, she knows the hospital, she knows the layout. She got one of her friends to plant that there, but then you say, okay, it's an emergency surgery. It's not even a planned surgery. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 <laughs> I mean, it's clearly points to something, like you say, that some, some part of the brain at least is is non-local um as a neuroscientist what would you say to people who think that we are just computers made of meat or we're all brain or 
you know, that they think all of this is just wishful thinking. What, what do you say to those people? Because you must come across them as well in your everyday life. You must come up with colleagues, I'm guessing friends. Uh, I'm guessing it comes kind of from all angles sometimes. So what is your go-to response? You know, I think my go-to response is I ask them to be curious and really look at the literature. And mm. I, for example, would actually give them papers that I believe are strong. And a lot of them would be the near-death experience papers. And I would say, read it carefully, and then let's have a discussion about it. And often when I have somebody that's very, very strong in their own lens of materialism, they will simply say, um, I just can't believe it's true. I'm sure there must have been something where somebody misunderstood the patient, or they, they have to find a way that the research cannot be true. That's the only way they can get out of it. And that's yeah. okay. I mean, one of the things I'm also learning is that when I have a disagreement on lenses like that, it's fine just to say, great, you know, we'll just agree to disagree and let it be that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, this has been a lot of fun, Marjorie. This has been, this has been great. It's been fascinating. Do you want to leave any words um, or share anything with, with people watching and listening before we, before we go? Is there anything you'd like to, to say? It can be literally anything. You can, you can kind of tell us about one of your books if you want or, you know, whatever you want to say. Some words think, of wisdom. <laughs> sure. And, and I think my words would simply be that from like now 40 years of research, both in rehabilitation and then now in consciousness, I believe that the most important thing we can do is to work on quieting our mind so that we can become aware of our unity with the people and the world around us. And people talk about this crisis the world is going through right now. And I believe that when we shift our worldview to one that is more expansive, that we're all part of a greater whole, we begin to sense that we want to do something to help climate warming and to help other people around us. And so to me, it's like, just quiet your mind a little bit, focus in on these things, look at some of the literature and see if that might change your worldview, just expanding it a little bit. That's all. Mm. Seems like people should be able to do that pretty straightforward way to, to to get into this kind of thing right to just open your mind and quiet it down and and look at the evidence thank you so much marjorie this was awesome i, I really appreciate your time and and you sharing your, your experience your knowledge and everything with me um i wish you all the best thank you so much ben Thank you for watching my conversation with neuroscientist Marjorie Willicott. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something from it, or maybe even became inspired to try meditating. Please see the description for all the relevant links related to Marjorie and this podcast. If you want to join us on our journey to unravel the universe, please subscribe. If you want to help us continue what we're doing, please consider supporting us via Patreon.